0: Welcome back to the Health Longevity Secrets Show with Dr. Robert Lufkin. Today, I'm joined by co founders of a new MRI company with a technological twist and a revolutionary vision to transform health and longevity by low cost MR screening for cancer and other diseases. Raj Atariwala, MD, and Andrew Lacey, MBA JD, describe their fascinating journey and the challenges of early detection of disease. Before we begin, I would like to mention that this show is separate from my teaching and research roles at the medical school with which I am currently associated. It is part of my continuing effort to bring quality, evidence-based information about health and longevity to the general public. Please enjoy this interview with Raj Akhtariwala, MD, and Andrew Lacey, MBA, JD. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our show. Today, we're going to hear about some revolutionary new MR technology from the two co-founders of a new company on how it may transform the way we look at MR screening for health and longevity. Andrew Lacey is the founder and CEO at Prunuvo Health. He has an MBA from Stanford University, a JD in Law, and Bachelor of Economics from the University of Melbourne. He also has extensive experience taking digital products from conception to launch in a number of industries. Raj Walla is also co-founder of Pernuable Health. He's dual board certified in radiology and nuclear medicine. He received his medical training at the University of British Columbia with extra specialized training at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute, UCLA, and in USC. As if that's not enough, he also holds a doctorate in biomedical engineering from Northwestern University. Uh, he's pioneered advances in the field of whole body MRI through his work and authored numerous publications and presented at international medical conferences on whole body imaging and cancer detection. Welcome, Raj and uh, Andrew, to our show.
1: Uh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> great, great to meet you, everyone.
0: Likewise, and, and I, I share your vision for uh, the power of MR screening uh, to improve our health and longe- longevity, and also the sort of the long-term vision as uh, uh, lowering the price of the scan to, you know, something that's very affordable that may take as short as 15 minutes that, uh, that we could even do it on an annual basis. It's, it's, it's really very exciting. Maybe we could yeah, start exactly. off yeah, maybe we could start off just talking about um, yeah how did how did you get here to, to form this uh, exciting company?
1: Um, sure so, so maybe I can kind of start with a bit of my, my unusual background so I'm really an engineer in medicine sort of having done engineering first and then realized like wait a minute it's like you know how do things work and, and realize there's a disc, disconnection between the two fields of heavy science and engineering and, um, and, and medicine. And that actually occurred when we tried to get a robot into the OR at um, at um, Harvard Mass General. And so the, the surgeons convinced me as a crazy guy to go into medicine. So I was like, okay, you know, my 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 PhD advisor's famous last words were like, well, knowing Canada's cheap and the engineering world will always take you back. <laughs>
0: so
1: <laughs> uh, fast forward 12 years <laughs> after medical school and uh, a couple of residencies. Um, and that's where we sort of realized that you know, how can we really kind of harness the power of, of nuclear medicine and and apply it to something without radiation being MRI? And, and that's where I really decided that, you know, I'm going to basically, if I can't find what I'm looking for from a research point of view, I'm just going to buy my own MRI machine. <laughs> and so that's what I did. And basically started to, you know, um, realize that there's this entire world of MRI physicists out there who do sort of really um, amazing things that I can't understand medicine so I became the translator between what I wanted from an imaging point of view um, to what we needed to create it and so that was that was how we started So and, so, um, and, I ahead,
2: say, and, how, and then Raj and I met uh, about two and a half years ago uh, I he- heard about this uh, just on the grapevine this uh, very impressive um, radiologist up in british columbia canada who was doing these amazing scans and being a curious person i jumped on a plane uh went to vancouver canada and sat inside the machine for i think at the time was about uh, uh you know about about an hour and as soon as i got out of the machine i sat down with raj and looked through these images that he had taken and uh i was just completely floored i never before in my life had I had such a strong feeling that I was looking at something that was really the future of an industry. And, uh, and so just the incredible depth um, and sort of diagnostic quality of the images that uh, Raj had managed to take, and, and, and I don't want to, you know, and it taken him 10 years to get to a point where we could do something in the speed that we were doing it. Uh, and, and so we partnered up about two years ago, and we've been working together ever since to bring this to the rest of the world.
0: Oh, that's, that's, that's fascinating. I, I, I think, um, Raj, we may have overlapped a little at, uh, I am based in California. I'm, uh, we may have overlapped at UCLA perhaps. Uh, I'm also based at USC now. So I, I don't know if our, our journey, we probably know some of the same people at those institutions at least.
1: <laughs> no, for sure. Like, um, I'm sure we do. Cause like, uh, what I did is like, um, when I was doing nuclear medicine, Afterwards, I sort of did a radiology nuclear medicine sandwich, but PET-CT was just sort of, you know, really kind of coming into its prime for a, you know, a cancer imaging modality. So I spent a lot of time at UCLA and, um, you know, worked with some of the best people around as well at Sloan Kettering with some of the best people in in PET-CT. And then I kept sort of thinking, it's like, you know, how do we actually take what we do in nuclear medicine where, you know, we're injecting radioactivity into somebody and how do we move that or morph that into MRI? So one of the biggest things is for a screening test, um, we don't want radiation, we don't want injection, you know, it it all sort of came down to something really simple. It's like, okay, what would I want for myself or my family, um, or any loved ones? And that's basically what what I started to build. You know, I had this unusual background in the fact that I was like, wait, you know, an MRI is just like a smartphone. It's like, there's all these people out there who can build things that I want. And, you know, on a hunch, I kind of thought, if I buy this right type of a hardware, Um, maybe I can get it to do things that have never been seen before. And, and, you know, sure enough, over time, you know, as Andrew said, it took us several years, many years um, to to get there. And then we wound up getting these sequences built. Uh, We built a lot of them ourselves. We made them quicker, better, faster. Um, But most importantly, and this is one of the critical things, is that they all had to be diagnostic. Um, And and so, you know, there's a lot of people who will actually kind of take an MRI machine and kind of, you know, put some new whiz-bang sequence on it that nobody knows how to look at whereas for me, what was really important is that, you know, every radiologist on the planet who knows how to look at images can look at these and say, wow, how do you do that? (laughs) And, um, and that's the important part because, you know, there's all these interesting tools that people kind of build and sort of bring into medicine that, you know, the vast majority of us physicians have no idea what to do with. We're like, that's cool, but how do I kind of get this out to to everybody? And, um, you know, one of the things that actually had also the benefit of doing is I decided, you know, after, Finishing all my training, I actually decided to go and work in a rural environment where, you know, instead of, you know, even though I have this crazy academic background, I decided I'm going to go work rural to kind of see what, what does the average person out there want? What is the practical kind of no-nonsense, useful stuff that is beneficial for every person? Um, And and then, you know, how do we actually implement that on an MRI machine? And that's what, that's what we built and um, looked at how do we make it go faster and faster? And I used to do this unusual thing where I would actually kind of meet with every single patient after an exam as a, as a radiologist. So I think, you know, for example, like with Andrew, I, you know, I, I, the first time he came up, got a scan then we sat in my little office, we had a big TV and I kind of went through all the images with him. And, you know, you can actually, you know, almost prospectively tell patients what their symptoms will be from the pictures, <laughs> you know, because that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking at this, we're talking to patients and, you know, as you know, from a medical point of view, like 70% of the history will tell you the diagnosis, right? If, if we have enough time to listen to patients. And, you know, that that that's kind of what what we did. And so then when Andrew came along, we're like, well, how do we sort of reproduce that? Because there's only a small handful of crazy radiologists like me who are actually going to talk to people. <laughs> and um, so that that's where Andrew came in. And we basically sort of reproduced my brain in, in software um, so that you can have all these... Images on your phone—you can have them accessible everywhere. With the whole layman's interpretation of what all it means, you know, like the the real goal is that you know we we know that knowledge is power, and we know that as physicians we we hold a tremendous amount of knowledge, um, but the goal is to really sort of translate that down to the individual patient so that they're actually empowered to really be advocates for themselves, and that's how you get prevention. That's how you get longevity by really educating patients and sort of putting them in the driver's seat for their own healthcare.
0: Yes, certainly the idea of uh a patient seeing seeing an image of uh an abnormality on their on their on their scan and then knowing that they can make choices in their lives over 12 months and and then get rescanned and see that the changes can be very very powerful. I think you you you're really onto something there and and just involving the patient in their care and seeing it on the pictures is is uh, I, I think that's going to be a, a game changer. Before we get too far into the into the details here, and especially about um, your the the particular technological advantages of your product and and the delivery system. Before we do that, maybe we could just take a, a few moments for our audience. Who may not be familiar with the subtleties between CT, MR, plain films, ultrasound, and CT PET? Maybe, maybe just uh, map that out a little bit, if you don't mind, Raj.
1: Sure. Yeah. And, 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 and that's a great question. So, so X-ray. Um, we all kind of know X-ray because when we learn the alphabet, that's the only thing that shows up on the letter X. <laughs> <laughs> so, but basically, X-ray. What we're doing is we're we're taking high energy photons and shining them through people or a patient, and what it does, it actually looks at um, extremes of tissue density. So at one end, everything that's black is going to be air where the photon went right through and came out and exposed the x-ray film. And on the other end, what we see is the very dense material of the bones, which wind up being white. And everything in between is kind of like a sort of fuzzy shade of gray. And with the x-ray, we're basically kind of going and projecting a three-dimensional object on a 2D picture. Um, And then CT or computed tomography came around, which basically what it does, it takes an x-ray beam and just spins it around your body and effectively looks at it from multiple different directions and then interpolates what's going on in the middle. So it actually allows us to see three dimensions of, of an x-ray. Now, the problem is with 3D is that there's a fair amount of radiation. Um, and we know that radiation has a risk of inducing malignancy. You know, it's, it's one of the things that you, you know, when you need a CT for diagnostic purposes, you need a CT. But if you're looking at screening, you don't want to do radiation. Now, when we move into the more advanced images, things like positron emission tomography or the entire field of nuclear medicine, what we're doing is we're actually taking radioactive material, we're injecting it into your bloodstream, and we're looking to see where it goes and collects. So for, um, for let's say, a nuclear medicine bone scan, we're, we're taking an agent that, that, that basically goes to where the bone is developing and, and, and being turned over and concentrates there, and then it actually allows us to pinpoint the problem and say, oh, there it is. We have no idea what's going on. We know that there's an area that's bones turn, turning over quickly. Is it turning over quickly because it's broken? Is it turning over quickly because it's infected? Or is it turning over quickly because there's a tumor in it? We have no idea. We can just see the problem. And so then we look at these other modalities, such as CT or x-ray, to actually help us diagnose what's going on. And so then comes along positron emission tomography, which is, again, in the field of nuclear medicine. It's what we're doing with that. So tomography, just like computer tomography of CT, we're taking a camera, rotating it around, and we're actually looking um, throughout the entire body in three dimensions. But in this case, the most common type for cancer imaging is we're taking glucose, so the building block of every cell in our body, and we're adding a radio label to it, so a radioactive fluorine to it. We inject it into the body, and where it goes and concentrates, is areas where you have increased tumor or cellular density so most tumors as we know are hard you know for women they used to say you know palpate for your breast feel for a lump you know so we know that those lumps are hard and so what happens where those areas are, are, are hard is that there's an area of increased cellular density so a whole cluster of cells now that whole cluster of cells requires a lot of glucose to feed it so with positron emission tomography you take FDG glucose inject it in it would concentrate out that area of increased cellular density and that's how we would find it um, whereas with ct in order to really be able to see what's going on we have to actually go in and do an injection so that we can actually see where there's increased blood flow to deliver that glucose to that hard lump of increased cellular density so typically for ct we need an injection to see what's going on to see blood flow with positron emission tomography we're looking at glucose concentration directly and in, in tumor cells and now the problem with both ct and and positron emission tomography is that there is that radioactivity so it's not a great idea for, for screening um, because of the risk of, of inducing cancer in a healthy population and when a population already has cancer yes that's doesn't matter it's like you need to figure out what's going on with, with with that type of modality and so after doing um you know working at and understanding how PET worked at from from some of the best people in the world um that's where I kind of thought well In in imaging, typically, we just kind of look at an individual body part. It's typically the size of an x-ray piece of film. So, you know, a chest x-ray, that's what we look at. We look at the head or the neck or the chest or individual piece. Um, And the reason why is because we can always bring somebody back and take another picture. Whereas in the field of nuclear medicine, because we're injecting radioactivity, we basically want to look at everywhere where the person can go. So we basically sort of scan from the top of the head to the feet because we don't want to bring them back and inject them with another heavy dose of radiation. So I kind of thought, well, can we not do this with something like MRI, um, which has always been limited to kind of little individual body parts. And that's where as a crazy guy I decided to say, well, if I buy my own MRI machine with this unusual hardware, um, possibly we can make this work. And then that's when I realized there's this world of MRI physicists out there who are just basically like pounding down my door to say, hey, you understand us. You understand us. And I'd be like, yes, I do. But this is what I want you to make me. <laughs> and so, you know, like that iterative cycle was was not fast. It was very, very complicated. Um, but, you know, that that's kind of where we are with with Pernubo.
0: Well, um, before we uh, get on to Pernuvo, uh we we hear a lot about ultrasound as a screening technique uh, and. I understand ultrasound has no ionizing radiation. Um, What are the trade-offs with ultrasound versus CT versus MR for screening?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So so ultrasound, um, so we're basically looking at high frequency waves in the megahertz range, so well above anything we can hear. Um, And what it actually does, it actually, like an echo, it penetrates through tissue and reflects off of whatever tissue it's seeing. But it's basically only taking a a slice through an individual part. And it's it's very, very operator dependent. Um, So what that means is, you know, if you have a good ultrasound technologist, you're going to get a good study. If you don't, you're not. And one of the problems with um, ultrasound as well is that the bigger people are, the farther that echo has to travel and the weaker it gets. And so as a result, you start to lose signal um, in in bigger people or or large organs like, like the liver. Um, So, so that's one of the weaknesses. Now, one of the strengths of ultrasound is that we can use something called the Doppler effect, which is where we're hearing a frequency increase as it's coming towards you, then decrease as it goes away from you. You know, just like we talk about an ambulance, if you're hearing a siren, you can tell which way it's going based on the frequency shift. And so ultrasound uses that Doppler principle to, to look at blood flow. And that that's really valuable because, you know, again, we can see blood flow now in real time whereas all the other imaging modalities can look at blood flow in in real time. So for a screening modality to look at, you know, things like the carotids, arteries, which are nice and superficial, um, it actually works out quite well because we're, you know, there's not a lot of depth to penetrate through. Most of us don't have big fat necks. Um, And then as well, we can look at that blood flow and, and see how it's changing over time with each heartbeat. Now, interestingly, you can do the exact same thing with MRI, but it's very time consuming and um it's just time consuming so you know we could do it we actually used to play with it a lot and, and it works very very well and, it, and now it is operator independent um but it's just time consuming and ultrasound is cheap and readily available so that's one of the big benefits of, of, of ultrasound mm-hmm. so, so that's well, kind of how it works
0: great yeah and so so that's ct and 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 uh PET scanning and nuclear medicine scanning and ultrasound and plain film x-rays. Now, how does MR work so that it can do all these wonderful things without any ionizing radiation or without any potential harm to the patient?
1: Um, yeah, now, now you get to the fun questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so basically, you know, um, we, we try and think of MRI as something really complicated, but at least in my mind, it's pretty simple. Um, you know, it's really nothing more than a hydrogen imager. So basically, our body is 70% water. Um, and then we have a lot of hydrogen on fats. And so we basically go and look at those two frequencies and say, hey, this is fat, this is water. Um, and really, that that's kind of how it's working. And so effectively, what we're doing is when somebody goes into an MRI room, we're shielding out all the radio frequencies, so all the Wi-Fi, all the cell phone, everything else like that, AM radios, FM radios, it's all blocked out in this room. It's called a Faraday cage. Um, and so when when we're in there, what we're doing is we're actually going and orienting all the hydrogens in a certain way in your body. Um, and then we actually go and we move them around. And so as they move around, they actually give off radio frequency in the AM radio scale. That's so what we do is we kind of go and we sort of listen up, slice by slice by slice. And the beauty of it is we can orient those slices in any which way we want, um, unlike CT, which has to be this way. We can orient it obliquely, we can do it any which way. So if somebody has like a really curved spine, we can straighten out the spine with MRI just by saying, you know, we're going to change our, our, our radio frequency waves or, or magnetic wave that we're putting in to be able to orient, orient it. And so in the simplest form, like I said, an MRI is nothing more than a hydrogen imager and we're basically listening to the hydrogens on an AM radio. Uh Uh The beauty of it is, you know, one of the things that we did in looking at you, what are the potential risks in terms of getting a a preneutral scan? You know, you're in the machine for about an hour and so we did a calculation on that, which is called SAR, which is specific absorption rate. And so any radio frequency, so your cell phone or anything else like that has a SAR calculation um, because it's got a, it's a radio. And, um, and, and what we found is that, you know, getting a, a scan is equivalent to talking on your cell phone for, you know, around three to four hours, probably less now, as cell phones get even more powerful. So, you know, and and when we're actually looking at a really low wavelength, we're, we're basically looking at an AM radio, you know, they've been around for you know, the first radio developed. And so, um, you know, the, the amount of risk from that is, is incredibly low. Your cell phone yeah, and- has greater greater risk
0: And to be clear, the the electromagnetic, quote, radiation that's used in an MR scanner um, is not ionizing. And so there's there's that risk for cancer that we see with x-rays is not there. There may be some thermal effects with the SARS, but that's just heating. And as long as we don't do too much, the MR should be safe then. Exactly. completely, Yeah, Yeah. safe. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah,
2: it's worth adding. I think uh, one of the things that um, Dr. Adarella has been very um, sort of pioneering is in the use of a particular technique on MRI called diffusion imaging, and this is really a uh, it's a functional imaging technique. You know, in the same way that um, uh, positron emission tomography is looking at tissue function, and uh, it's you know, every year there are more and more studies looking at the benefits of these techniques for, uh, for lesion uh, detection and discrimination. And this is really something that Raj incorporated into these protocols starting 10 years ago. Uh, so if you recall, Raj mentioned that a tumour being a density packed cluster of cells, um, we, you know, it requires a lot more energy. Um, and we see that energy in the form of glucose uptake on, um, on PET-CT we see that, uh, that mass in the form of um, uh, increased vascularity in the context of a contrast enhanced CT. Uh, on MRI, we see in fact that dense mass itself. So whereas with PET-CT and with uh, CT, we're looking at, I guess, like these biomarkers of, uh, of a, a potential uh, malignant uh, tumor, we're looking at the actual tumor itself. And so here are three different methodologies. They're all looking at exactly the same thing, but the primary advantage of MRI is, of course, it doesn't involve any radiation. So of, of the three modalities, it's the only one that really is appropriate um, for screening in, in sort of normal populations.
0: Yeah, and I want to uh, I want to also specifically talk about the the unique uh, advantages of the of the pulse sequences or hardware that you've developed for particular sort of to differentiate this from, you know, any other MR scanner. Um, Before we do that, one last question It just, I I always remember from uh, medical school about looking at microscopes and um, uh, trying to, looking at spatial resolution with microscopes and that the the limiting factor was the wavelength of the light. And that's why light microscopes can only see down to a certain size. If you want to go more, you switch to electron microscopes. And, and you, you alluded to uh, uh, frequencies with ultrasound, uh, transducer frequencies and then the megahertz. And if you want to increase that range, you can go down, I, I guess. And then I guess the question for our audience is with MR do those spatial resolutions uh, hold uh, effects hold also? In other words, what's the wavelength limitation on spatial resolution for MR? What's the wavelength of the electromagnetic radiation used for MR? And if that's not the limitation, what is?
1: Yeah, no, that's actually a great question. So, so <clears throat> and MRI is actually a little bit different than, than all the other types, like it, types of imaging. Like surprisingly, in terms of if we try to slice something as thin as possible, the highest resolution is going to be the old x-ray because it's wavelength of light. Um, nothing has higher detail than, than a plain film x-ray. Um, everything else is less than that. But so when we look at we call it spatial resolution, then the other area that's actually very, very powerful is what we call contrast resolution, basically seeing difference between tissue. And now that's where the field of nuclear medicine becomes very powerful because, yeah, we can't We can tell there's a bone. We don't get any detail on the bone, but we can see that there's a big black spot. It actually allows you to find a needle in the haystack. And so that's kind of what we call spatial resolution or um, sorry, contrast resolution. And so with MRI, you actually get to play between both. And it's one of these things where there's actually trade-offs where you can decide, okay, how how thin do I want to slice somebody? Like we can basically, you know, we're slicing somebody on the order of like 1.2 millimeters, which is, you know, what are you going to do with less than that? It doesn't help you. From a clinical point of view, it's entirely useless. Um, and it would take much more time to go thinner and thinner. But now, if you're in the research world, for sure, you want to go thinner. But from a practical clinical point of view, yeah, it adds nothing. No surgeon's going to operate on something less than one millimeter. Or even practical reality, they're not going to actually operate on anything less than a centimeter. So that's... The type of resolutions that we're playing with is anywhere between 1.2 and, and four to five millimeters on, on MRI. And it's very very similar for CT scan. So CT scanner, they started to slice thinner and thinner and thinner as the power on the machine got higher and higher. And then interestingly, radiologists want to say, "No, nah, I only want to look at it five millimeters because the detail doesn't offer us anything useful." Um, you know, so so that's. So, so that's kind of like roughly the level of resolution. And, and so when we talk about like the clinical quality, like that's what we're really looking at. Is like, what would the, you know, the best radiologist on the planet want to see for, for their patient, for their mother, for their father, for their sister, son, daughter? And that, that's kind of what we, what we targeted as being our goal for, for imaging.
0: Right. So, so, now for um, we've we've established that MR has significant advantage advantages over these other techniques for for screening, including lack of radiation and the spatial resolution. Now, you mentioned the diffusion imaging technique. Could you speak about um, because diffusion imaging is is available in many different MR scanners, I think general regular MR scanners, but you have a particular. Uh, unique proprietary type of diffusion imaging that enables Pernuvo to do things that uh, other companies can't do. Could you talk to that a little bit so we can understand uh, the advantage here and what you can do? For sure.
1: Yeah. So, so as you know, um, diffusion as a technique is basically so sort of what revolutionized stroke imaging. So we could actually see cellular or subcellular changes that would occur well before we saw that anatomical development. So. Um, those subcellular changes are what we call a functional problem. And then that's the entire field of nuclear medicine. It's all about functional imaging. How does it work? What's happening in a cellular level? And so in order to do diffusion and do it very, very well, what we're looking at, again, is basically hydrogen or water moving at very, very short periods of time. So um, every cell in the body has water in it and outside of it, the cellular membrane. And so that water regulation is very, very tightly controlled. So um, what Dennis LeBihan discovered, I think back in the eighties is that in the brain, when you block out blood flow to the brain, um, you wind up losing that water. You wind up actually losing that water pump. That's actually controlling the water balance at the, in the brain. And that's what we see now as a stroke. And so we can see that loss of water motion at a cellular level. Well, before we see the destructive changes that occur later on, on what we call the anatomic imaging. So, Works well for the brain because it's not moving. <laughs> the, the head is very, very still, um, you know, typically. And so once we come lower down to the body, we actually run into all sorts of problems with people breathing, different patient sizes. Um, most, most people's heads are roughly the same size. Um, one of the other things that in the head, you basically have, um, you know, the, the brain uses 20% of your cardiac output. So it's basically a, a heat sink. So you can never have to worry about heating in the brain because it's always being cooled by the blood flow. So there's all these kind of challenges and limitations that fall apart once you get below the below the, below the the head. And particularly when you get close to the diaphragm, you get like a lot of movement of the diaphragm from breathing. You get cardiac pulsation, which is moving, um, moving, and obviously we don't want to stop. And so that causes all sorts of problems as well with, with motility. Um, one of the other things with MRI, it actually struggles when you actually have um, what we call susceptibility, which is between these different tissue types. So if you have bone, which contains no hydrogen, so it's basically black and no signal, and then you have air, which also has no signal, um, and it's black, and you put those beside something with signal in it, it actually causes distortion in the the radio wave. It's basically like a ripple. And so that gives us this susceptibility. So the bowel, unfortunately, is full of gas (laughs) and variable gas, unpredictable locations. And so that actually makes um, imaging far more challenging um, in the the abdomen. And now you go and you couple the fact that we're actually looking at water motion very, very quickly, it becomes incredibly hardware demanding. And so you need, you know, you really need like a unique hardware to be able to solve that that problem. And, And, you know, all these different interplays where you have heating, you have resolution of both contrast and spatial resolution. You have frequency of scanning. So there's, there's a lot of variables that, you know, if you were to try and, and, and sort of build a sequence, at, you know, there's, there's close to about 150 parameters for like a single sequence in the, in, in the abdomen that have to be modified to be able to create one of these. But you can only do that when you have like the right hardware. You know, I, I say it's very much like, um, you know, computer program. Like if you have the most advanced, you know, cell phone or, or the most advanced smartphone around, you can build software to put on that but you can't put it on the original smartphone, the original iPhone, it just won't run. Um, you know, and so those are, those are some of the real key, key features. So you kind of need to know how your hardware works to be able to program for it. Um, and then you can actually like get, get the types of images that we're, we're creating.
0: Oh, that's, that's really exciting. Um, so for, for our, our patients, our audience out there, um, to get this scan, we, we hear a lot about screening tests that are recommended, imaging screening tests and other screening tests for, for cancer and, and for other chronic diseases. What, um, what screening tests does this address, uh, this, this scan that they would get uh, ideally maybe even once a year, but um, what tests will they not have to do otherwise when they get this?
1: Um, actually there's, there's actually a lot, you know, basically we can actually, you know, detect nine of the 10 top cancers in stage one. Um, the only cancer we can't detect in stage one is leukemia. We'll see that in stage three, whereas a blood test will pick it up in stage one. Um, you know, for a screening, I typically kind of say to people, look, there is no perfect test. Um, we're probably the best out there in terms of what we can detect, particularly when you're screening, cause there's no radiation, but more importantly, like, you know, lung cancer, breast cancer. Um, pancreatic cancer, we can see colon cancer, we can see. I hope to never see that if people get their colonoscopies. Um, we might not see an early polyp, uh, whereas a col- where a colonoscopy can remove that polyp, but we will see colon cancer, and particularly the hard ones that are hard for the, the colonoscopy, for colonoscopists to get all the way around to the cecal pole, because um, you're basically kind of trying to backtrack around yourself. We've actually picked those up in, in patients who've actually had colonoscopy, where that cecal pole tumor has been missed, just because you can't get there sometimes, um, as well, renal, renal cancer, um, multiple myeloma we can pick up. So it's, it's, it's pretty much, you know, the, the vast majority of, of everything that we, we can actually see in ovarian cancer is, I think a really important one for, for females, um, prostate cancer and particularly prostate screening is, is one of the most powerful areas that MRI is now being used in general. And um, you know we talked about the diffusion te- diffusion technique, and for prostate imaging, it's sort of becoming like the de facto gold standard for screening prostate in in, in many countries. Um, and again, they're doing that without without contrast, and there's a whole criteria that's been been built to sort of compensate for weaker MRI machines where they have to you know those those weaker machines they'll do what's called a, a PIRADS criteria where they'll have to inject um, blood flow and contrast to look at the blood flow in the prostate. Um, you know, so those are, those are the type of things that we can see, um, I in think, addition
2: um, I was going to say like, from the context of a patient, um, you know, I largely think that, um, what we do with Renuva really falls into two categories. There's a bunch of stuff out there, unfortunately that either doesn't have symptoms or there aren't good screening tests for, or has confusing, confusing, sort of indeterminate symptoms like abdominal pain. And the, um, and the Pranibra scan is very good at picking up early some of these things that might kill you. And those obviously, are, you know, cancers or, um, or cerebral aneurysms or AAA or there's any number of things that they just aren't really good tests for right now. Um, but, but the second thing that I think is really, um, you know, fascinating and in some ways it's what drew me into working with, with uh, Raj is that there's such that, you know, in the US, we have this sort of epidemic of, you know, chronic illness. And uh, what we're finding now that we've imaged thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, with this uh, screening exam is that just how early we can pick up the signs of uh, chronic conditions, such as, you know, small vessel ischemia or um, uh, spinal uh, uh, issues, stability issues. I mean, we can see these things you know, five to 10 years before you might actually need surgery and many years before you might actually uh, notice the symptoms. And it's one of the sort of amazing and frustrating things about the human body is it's so plastic that, you know, you can actually be causing a lot of underlying damage and not even realize it. um, And your body happily compensates until it sort of reaches this point of no return. And then all of a sudden you're, you have chronic disease. Um, You have a a liver that was like healing itself for many, many years. And all of a sudden it just gives up. Um, And so... Uh, and so the of course when people think about getting a scan they, they, they're generally thinking about well maybe this will catch something that might save my life you know uh, now but sort of what's interesting for everyone is just to understand how the trajectory of the way that they live their life is affecting I guess uh, their body and this you know here and we get into this Term that you'd be obviously very familiar with, which is sort of health span rather than just lifespan. You know, how long can you live a healthy, mobile, um, engaging life? And and I think there's a lot of interesting um, biomarkers, um, or there's just a lot of interesting motivation and enthusiasm you can, I guess, uh, catalyze when you can show people exactly the effects of their lifestyle, uh, you you know, on uh, sort of like the underlying condition of their body.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great point. Uh we're we're seeing in long in the longevity space a lot of the the biomarkers for biological age versus chronological age, which is of course just our birth dates. Uh, things like the epigenetic methylation clocks. There's now a consumer version of that and glycation clocks and protonomic clocks. Have have you have you guys thought about doing a uh, imaging based image uh biomarker clock sort of to calculate the biological age from their, uh, from their Pernuvo scan.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's a really, I would say, very active area of research inside the company. Um, It's somewhat groundbreaking in the same way that the epigenetic clock is. I mean, there's not... um, you know, we're really looking at sort of di- directionality. It's very, these sort of studies are very, very difficult to sort of prove causation because the studies take 20 or 30 years. So sort of, you know, any study where, you know, living longer is the goal, we're typically not going to live long enough ourselves to actually sort of see the outcome of the study. And so and, and so, what you tend to focus on is, you know, what is the science, you, you know, what is sort of, what is the evidence pointing towards as, um, you know, as sort of leading indicators for health. And, and I think a lot of those, not all of them, um, but sort of outside of uh, metabolic um, uh, sort of biomarkers that you can apply through a blood test, a lot of those are actually visible on MRI. So they're just yeah. waiting there for us to, uh, in some ways, uh, incorporate them into the protocols, You know, incorporate them back into the um, into the information that we provide back to the patient. So we're working really actively on this right now. What's really exciting, by the way, is, you know, MRI is very much a qualitative field. And so, you know, a, um, a, a a radiologist might look at your liver and say, you know, you have mild or medium or severe uh, fatty liver. But, you know, what you care about as a patient maybe is that your, you know, liver fat percentage is X this year, and you're going to work hard and change diet and lifestyle, and you want to see it, you know, X minus 2% next year. And so you can really start using these things to In some ways um, provide feedback for changes in lifestyle
0: that's huge that's great yeah um and uh so patients want to get this scan they go to your website uh do they need a doctor's referral or they can just uh, sign up themselves
2: well we um the short answer is it depends on the state okay Um, the longer answer is uh we take referrals either from a patient's physician or um, we, we uh, book directly patients, but we involve a third-party physician uh, in actually making a referral for us, even in the states where we don't really require this. And the main reason for that is that, um, you know, unlike perhaps other uh, tests in the longevity space, we really are taking clinical diagnostic images here. So there are real medical outcomes that um oftentimes require continuity of care so we just want to make sure that there's a physician involved that can then help follow up with any of you know anything that might come out of the scan
0: yeah and and also for our audience um in addition to the sites i think that you're currently located at uh, maybe you could list those for us now and in addition before the show we were just talking about you're getting ready to announce some new look new locations that uh that will make this even more accessible for patients. Maybe you could, if you don't mind, you could do that now.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a very exciting time for us. So, right in the middle of coronavirus, we expanded from uh, from our original location, Vancouver, down to Silicon Valley, and it was just the timing was, you know, on the one hand, quite bad, um, you know, being the middle of lockdown, but on the other hand, we had so many patients that were actually flying in to Vancouver to get one of our screening exams, um, so much so that the customs at the border never quite believed them that people would be traveling from the US <laughs> to Canada to get, some, you know, some form of medical treatment. And, uh, and so we opened uh, in Silicon Valley in October and ever since then we've been going um, very well. And people have been flying across even during coronavirus uh, from the East coast and other locations to um, come and get one of these screening exams. And I think it speaks a lot to um, just the um, faith that a lot of physicians and patients have been helping us. Uh, manage their health and so uh, so we're now looking um, at expanding to southern california so to los angeles region and also over at southern florida and over the course of the next year um, we hope to open in many other locations as well so we can bring this we can bring this exam closer to the people that can benefit from it Um, and, and obviously as a company so we can scale and continue to bring the price down so that more and more people can take advantage of um, the sort of insights that we give them about their health.
0: Yeah, that's that's so exciting. Uh, maybe in the last uh, last few minutes, we always ask our experts um, in a, in addition to the the exciting work they're doing, we also ask them about um, their own personal lives and what life. Maybe you guys could comment on any lifestyle choices that you found to be particularly valuable looking at health and longevity. In addition to your in addition to getting a prenuvo scan of course <laughs> but uh any things with diet uh, exercise supplements are you taking rapamycin metformin uh, anything like that
2: yeah i mean i could say speaking for myself so I, you know i do take um, uh, metformin uh, i think you know i i tend to keep a pretty uh, watchful eye on um, and we're all in the longevity space so therefore you know i guess at a certain level we all want to live longer and sort of healthier lives so i think that's i think metformin is the one where there's just such you know a reasonably heavy body of evidence that it can at a cellular level help inhibit uh cancer growth in particular so uh so, so that one i'm taking um uh I, I don't know about you raj i know you investigated at one point uh the effects of diets on the body and you had some interesting learnings
1: yeah yeah No, we, we've actually sort of tried all the things uh, all sorts of interesting different things like we we um we tried a thing where we actually went vegan for for a month and scanned ourselves before and afterwards just to see what happened um with our bodies so we could actually we were looking at our visceral fat and our, and our peripheral fat on the uh, on the mri machine because so we could quantify it and see if it. it's one of the research programs we're working on is to be able to quantify visceral fat off the scans and so we tried it to see what happened because it was a Movie that came out, and one of the staff was like, "Hey, we should try this." I said, "After Christmas." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and what was actually really fascinating. So I have allergies; I'm severely allergic to all nuts, peanuts, almonds, all of them. And um, so I found a, a real struggle to actually be try and be vegan um, because there's a lot of cashew replacements and nut replacements. But one of the things that the movie did not tell us is that you you have to exercise; you can't just do diet alone. Because what actually happened is that we actually all wound up losing muscle mass. Um, and actually gain a little bit of fat Um, whereas one person got a got an exercise bike for christmas and she exercised and went vegan and she actually gained muscle mass and got much healthier so when we talk about diet and exercise it's not one it has to be both and and, you know you can't do one or the other it's really both You, you need both and so that that's kind of what i do it's like one of the you know you know, being a being a East Indian person, it's like, you know, male, we know that our risk of cardiovascular disease is, is very high. Um, you know, and so as a result, it's like what I try and do is, is basically, you know, walk as much as you can, eat a little bit less. I do my omega threes um, because it's one of the things that we know will will work well. I have um, like one of the most fascinating tools that I actually have is a, um, a blood pressure wash watch. So you can actually go and monitor blood pressure basically whenever you want. And um, you, the di- diurnal curve that we see during the day and at night, like sometimes at night, you know, you push the button on your watch and it inflates a cuff and you can see exactly what's what's happening with your blood pressure. Sometimes you think, boy, I'm sleeping. I think I might be dead. I've never seen like a blood pressure so low, but, but it really is quite fascinating. That's actually what triggered me to get into um, um, engineering school to start with is I wanted to understand how the blood flow in the body worked and in the eye. And because um, we would see that disease processes seem to manifest early in the morning when they pertain to blood flow. So there's more strokes in the, strokes in the morning. There's more hypotensive episodes in the morning. Glaucoma progresses in the morning, all of these things. So, so that's one of the tools that I really like is this blood pressure watch.
0: Who, who makes it?
1: Who? Uh, it's, it's made by Omron. I have it. Uh, it's a little bit big, but I can kind of show you. So here it oh, is. Oh, that's great. And so it's actually got a, an inflatable cuff right here. Um, and so it actually inflates right up when you put it on your wrist. And so, you know, it's, it's fully FDA approved. You can actually get the, um, you can get your diurnal curve. You can basically, all you have to do to activate is you push this button and it inflates the cuff. You push the ah. button here, it inflates the cuff here around your wrist. And it just listens for the uh, systolic, um, you know, uh, systolic diastolic. And you get it right here with your heart rate and everything. I love this thing. Wow. And, I love
0: it. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put a link to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, definitely. It, uh, it tells me when I'm stressed out <laughs> because my blood pressure goes up <laughs> and then, and then, you know, it tells me when I need to like take calming deep breaths to slow down again, to, uh, you know, to bring the blood pressure down. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We, we know the damaging effects of like, high blood pressure. So,
0: Oh, Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, that, that's great. Yeah. And, um, Yep. Back, back to you, Andrew, on the on the metformin comments. We're going to have Nur Barzilai on the show, who's uh, sort of the leader of the TAME study, which is his prospective longevity study for metformin. I think Nur has said publicly he's taking uh, 1,500 milligrams a day of the metformin long, long-acting release himself. Also, mm-hmm. um I, I I agree totally, Raj, about exercise and and nutrition being hand in hand. Do you guys, speaking of nutrition, do you do any particular types of uh, diet or time restricted feeding? We're going to have uh, Jason Fung's uh, partner um, Megan Ramos on the show to talk about time restricted feeding, but do you do you do any of that?
2: I well, I spent uh, about four months last year doing uh, intermittent fasting and ketogenic diet, so I definitely experimented with that. It's very clear to me that. I mean, it's a, I guess, like a sample of one, but at least as far as it relates to my body, it's very clear that this is a healthy lifestyle. Now, the difficulty is with most sort of the lifestyle changes is, you know, how do you sustain them in the context of building a business? I mean, it's not very easy. There's definitely sort of uh, you know, like a slightly higher level of stress and a slightly lower level of sleep and all these things sort of relate, you know, um, if you're stressed and you don't sleep much, you are less inclined to eat a bit better and, uh, and sort of exercise well. Um, but you know, that's sort of my personal struggle. It's been very helpful for me, actually. I'm sort of one of the guinea guinea pigs on a Panugo scan. So it's, it's not uncommon that I might get scanned every two or three weeks, you know, when we try a new sequence or something. And the thing I find really amazing is just how quickly stuff that's going on in my life can manifest in my body. You know, like I, you know, I can see my, my spine straightening like, uh, materially from, you know, having a couple of stressful weeks. And you can imagine, like, you know, we, you know, it's definitely focused me on stress management because, you know, although I don't feel any pain, I don't want to have, you know, a disc once it starts slipping, it never unslips. You know, you can, all you can do is really arrest the progress of these problems. And, you know, a picture sort of tells a thousand words. So for me, it's been really motivational um, to help me also manage my stress levels, just seeing the impact that this can have on my body.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing, and and we're still learning so much. But I feel like we're this is really a revolutionary time in medicine for for longevity and health, and and tools like like uh, your scanning that, that's going to empower people to to make the right choices, to change their lifestyle, to uh, t- to make themselves have better better lives. It's very exciting. Yeah. I would say one of the things that we're really interesting, interested in researching, and we'd love to
2: actually partner with people to do this. You know, I read a book about, uh, I met uh, Matthew Walker's book about why we sleep. Um, and, you know, he talks about uh, the relationship between sleep and the size of the amygdala. But, you know, the sample of patients that I think the study that he referenced was something like 30 patients. I mean, we, you know, we're in this fortunate position where on the one hand, we're capturing detailed medical histories And on the other hand, we're actually capturing detailed anatomical images of the entire body. So, you know, I would love to work with people to actually further the science there. I mean, why not replicate that study of 30 patients over thousands of patients? Because, uh, you you know, I think we're looking in the same way we did with genetics, where you're looking for sort of um, correlations between, um, uh, you know, a genetic abnormalities and I guess genotype and phenotype. I think there's, you know, we're just starting to scratch the surface. Um, where we can look for relationships between uh, diet, exercise, stress, sleep, and trying to really understand at a, well, first of all, at a gross anatomical level, what effect is that happening on our body? And, And that maybe will help lead to different areas of inquiry about what's going on at a sort of biochemical level.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's a really hot area of research. We just spoke with Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, who uh, you may know of just completed a, a pilot study, but it was prospective randomized uh, trial of about 40 people of an eight-week intervention of lifestyle change. And they did epigenetic methylation clocks before and after the trial And they were able to show a reversal of three years on the methylation uh, sites based on that. There are a lot of questions still need to be worked out. You know, is methylation reversal indicative of uh, age reversal or is it just a phenotypic change like taking your gray hair and dyeing it black, you know, or something like that? But but there's still a lot of interesting work and i Uh, I'll, I'll plug you in with some, a number of people are doing studies, looking at these things that the imaging component, if you, if you wanted to add, that would be great. Uh, you know, people are showing just for, for brain scans, like hippocampal atrophy that everybody sees with, you know, Alzheimer's disease and APOE4 people in the hippocampus, um, Researchers have been able to show they can actually reverse the hippocampal atrophy on the MR scans after eight weeks of exercise or diet changes and, and other lifestyle things. So that's really, uh, really exciting what you're doing.
2: Well, I think if you're looking for early indicators of community decline, I mean, part of the problem of um, imaging and in particular MRI imaging is because it's such an ordinarily such a well, it's a very slow imaging modality. So therefore it becomes expensive. So it's one of the last modalities that you end up using. The same is true for PET-CT. And so by the time you get someone in a PET-CT machine to figure out their amyloid load, I mean, they're already in advanced um, Alzheimer's disease. So, so you really need to, you need, we need a lot more data up at the more normal end of the spectrum. Because yeah. what we really want to do is get a lot more fidelity about what's happening at the really early stages of disease. Because with that fidelity, we, you know, if we can identify earlier um, the, you, you know, the um, the very early progression of these types of diseases, in particular, cognitive decline, it can, you know, there's still lifestyle, and notably like exercise and diet, some interventions that actually can, you know, worst case uh, arrest that decline, and best case possibly turn it around.
0: Yeah, so you need not- you need early indications. Yeah, yeah, that, that the whole there's a whole movement in the Alzheimer's community with uh, speakers like uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen from UCLA and US uh, UCSF, who um, advocating uh, widespread lifestyle changes for reversal and even preventing Alzheimer's, but he's looking at he's looking at changes in the brain and hippocampal atrophy that occur 10 years before mild cognitive impairment at all, and possibly as an early signal for Alzheimer's. And that's when people need to start the prevention uh, or start the treatment. If they wait until they have mild cognitive impairment, like you say, it's later in the game and any treatments you do are going to be much less effective. But um, yeah, this is, this has been so much fun talking to you guys. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't if wait till we, you get the scan till you get set up here in Los Angeles. Maybe we can do another uh, another episode. We'll go over and uh, take a look at the facility there. That'll that'll be fascinating.
1: For sure. Maybe yeah, no, you, that'd, be, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, how can people? Well, we're gonna put the uh, your contacts in the show notes. Any other any other uh, thoughts you want to leave our audience with? Uh, what you're doing is beautiful work. It's gonna affect a lot of people, and uh, I I want to congratulate you on on what you what you've done and what you're continuing to do. It's very powerful. Yeah,
2: I think. I mean, I think one, one sort of parting thought for me would be, um, you know, when I first got my scan with Raj, I never actually fully understood how, you know, I was a little bit nervous. I, I didn't think I would be. But as the date got closer, I was kind of a bit nervous about what they might find. And it's so funny, this, um, you know, it's, it's sort of infuriating this human nature that we have that we don't want to actually know what's going on. You know, a lot of us have this sort of irrational fear um but I would say that the thing that I you know what I learned luckily Raj didn't find anything in me that was life-threatening and I just had this incredible sense of peace of mind for you know a month afterwards you know it was almost like I woke up with a little bit of adrenaline you know the world seemed a little bit clearer and, and brighter and more colorful and I think in some ways you know we focus a lot on what we might see but if anything what we're providing people with is peace of mind and I think people really underestimate the power of that and, you know um, in helping us lead really sort of healthy and happier lives it's this it's this sort of underlying question of like well you know everything feels good but you know i got a cousin that died of this suddenly or a mother that died of that and maybe i'm you know the same thing's happening in me so um you know i think what's great about all these new tests that are coming out is i think the more clarity we bring to our health the more peace of mind we have the more peace of mind we have the better lives we're going to leave
0: that's a beautiful thought, and, and we'll we'll leave with that. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Raj. We really appreciate uh, the work you're doing, and thanks for being on the show. No, this is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
2: Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking of it because of something you have seen here. If you find this video be value of you, please hit that like button and subscribe to support the work we do on this channel. Also, we take your suggestions and advice very seriously. Please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching and we'll hope to see you next time.